Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 353 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Lunar Module Pilot Charlie Duke. Charlie Duke took country music to the moon. He blasted off and busted out those songs by Buck and Merle. Porter, Jerry, Chet, and Dolly rode that rocket ship with Charlie. Folks from Bakersfield to Raleigh sang with every tune. When Charlie Duke took country music to the moon. The youngest and the tenth man to walk on the moon, Charles Moss Duke Jr., was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, on October 3, 1935. He is the son of Charles Moss Duke, an insurance salesman, and his wife, Willie Catherine Waters, who worked as a buyer for Best & Company. He was followed six minutes later by his identical twin brother, William Waters Duke. Charlie's mother traced her ancestry back to Colonel Philemon Barry Waters, who fought in the American Revolutionary War. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, brought the United States into World War II, Charlie's father volunteered to join the Navy and was assigned to Naval Air Station North Island in California. The family moved to California to join him, but after a year he was shipped out to the South Pacific, and Willie took the boys to Johnston, South Carolina, where her mother lived. Charlie's father returned from the South Pacific in 1944 and was stationed at Naval Air Station Daytona Beach, so the family moved there. In 1946, after the war ended, they settled in Lancaster, South Carolina, where his father sold insurance and his mother ran a dress shop. A sister, Elizabeth, was born in 1949. Uh, As uh, Bob said, I grew up in a small town in South Carolina, and uh, when I was 12 years old, uh, there wasn't any uh, space program, uh, and it was about 8,000 people in our town, and uh, I did not go out in the backyard when I was 12 years old and say, Mama, one day I'm going to walk on the moon. <laughs> uh, Mama would have sent me to the psychiatric hospital, <laughs> probably still been there. Uh, but my heroes were, uh, I can remember World War II, and I, my heroes were those that fought and died uh, in uh, World War II and all the services. As a boy, Charlie and his brother Bill made model aircraft. Sadly, a congenital heart defect caused Bill to drop out of strenuous sports and eventually inspired him to pursue a career in medicine. But golf was a sport they could both enjoy together. Charlie was active in the Boy Scouts of America and earned its highest rank of Eagle Scout in 1946. He went on to attend Lancaster High School. During high school, Duke decided that he would like to pursue a military career. And since his father had served in the Navy, he wanted to go to the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. 
As a first step, Duke went to see local congressman James P. Richards, who lived in Lancaster. Richards said that he would be pleased to give a local boy his nomination, but he also advised Duke that he would still need to pass the entrance examination and recommended that he attend a military prep school. Duke and his parents accepted this advice and chose the Admiral Farragut Academy in St. Petersburg, Florida, for his final two years of schooling. Duke sat for the examination for Annapolis in the middle of his senior year, and soon after he received a letter informing him that he had passed and was accepted into the class of 1957. The Lancaster News ran his picture on the front page along with the announcement of his acceptance. Charlie graduated from Farragut as valedictorian and president of the senior class in 1953. Duke entered the Naval Academy in June 1953, but he was no athlete, so he played golf for the academy team. During a two-month summer cruise to Europe on the escort carrier USS Saboni, he suffered from seasickness and began questioning his decision to join the Navy. On the other hand, he greatly enjoyed a familiarization flight in an N3N seaplane and began thinking of a career in aviation. The United States Air Force Academy had just been established and would not graduate its first class until 1959. So, up to a quarter of the Annapolis class were permitted to volunteer for the U.S. Air Force. In fact, more than a quarter of the class of 57 did so, and names were drawn from a hat to see who could volunteer. At his commissioning physical, Duke was shocked to find that he had a minor astigmatism in his right eye, which precluded becoming a naval aviator. But the Air Force said that it would still take him. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in Naval Science in June 1957 and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. So my dad had been in the Navy in World War II and so I decided, well, I'll go to the Naval Academy and serve my country uh, as a naval officer. Well, I got to the Naval Academy, and I fell in love with airplanes. And, uh, and I said, and I didn't really like sea duty, you know. It's uh, the thing, they, they wouldn't stay still. And uh, so I said, well, maybe, uh, you know, I got an opportunity. Maybe I ought to go in the Air Force. Uh, but their naval aviation was pretty exciting. There wasn't an Air Force Academy back then, so you could volunteer for the Air Force from the Navy, Naval Academy. And so uh, that decision was made my uh, senior year uh, when I took a physical and the doctor said, Mitch Emma Duke, uh, you got astigmatism in your right eye. You don't qualify for Naval Aviation, but the Air Force will take you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in I went to the Air Force. Uh, and... Um, I probably had several hundred physicals since then. It's been over 60 years, and nobody has ever seen an astigmatism in my right eye <laughs> since. So I said, thank you, Lord. Back then, I didn't say thank you, Lord, but now I say thank you, Lord, for putting me in the Air Force because it uh, helped me to plot my career uh, to, to uh, fighter, fighter squadron, uh, then a MIT, then a test pilot school, and into the uh, space program. Well, uh, when I was in, I graduated in 57, and uh, in October that year, I just began flight training uh, when Sputnik went up. And to me, that was the beginning of the uh, space age, Russian satellite. Uh, and uh, it really got our attention because our rockets were all blowing up uh, at liftoff. And so uh, we weren't having much success. In July of 1957, Duke, along with the other graduates of Annapolis and West Point who had chosen the Air Force, reported to Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, for two weeks' orientation. He was then sent to Spence Air Force Base in Moultrie, Georgia, for primary flight training. The first three months involved classwork and training with the T-34 Mentor, 
while the next three were with the T-28 Trojan, both were propeller-driven aircraft. For the next phase of his training, Charlie went to Webb Air Force Base in Big Spring, Texas in March 1958 for training with the T-33 Shooting Star, a jet aircraft. He graduated near the top of his class and received his wings and a certificate identifying him as a distinguished graduate, which gave him a choice of assignments. He chose to become a fighter pilot. He completed six months advanced training on the F-86 Sabre aircraft at Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia, where he was also a distinguished graduate. Once again, Duke had his choice of assignments and chose the 526th Fighter Interceptor Squadron at Ramstein Air Base in West Germany. This was at the height of the Cold War, and tensions ran high, especially during the Berlin Crisis of 1961. Duke chose the assignment precisely because it was the front line. Four of his squadron's F-86 fighter interceptors were always on alert, ready to scramble and intercept aircraft crossing the border from East Germany. Well, I got my wings and I went on into uh, Germany as a fighter interceptor pilot at Ramstein, Germany for three years. Got there in 1959, and at this point, NASA had picked the first group of astronauts. There were seven of them, and uh, they were in training. Well, I said, well, I thought everybody it would pass me by, in other words. I was too young, too inexperienced. I won't get to go. But uh, I uh, uh, really didn't even dream about it. But I was having a great job. Germany was really fantastic flying, and I was a bachelor, and uh, we had uh, so many uh, wonderful uh, opportunities to tour and uh, learn how to ski and all of those kind of things. So... Uh, uh, I, while I was over there in 1961, Yuri Gagarin, the Russian, went up, first, first human in space. Then Alan Shepard was the first American. And two weeks later, I, Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy announced, we're going to go to the moon. And we're going to land on the moon, and we're going to return safely by the end of 1969. As Charlie's third year tour of duty in Europe came to an end, he considered that his best career option was to further his education, something that the United States Air Force was encouraging. He applied to study aeronautical engineering at North Carolina State University, but this was not available. Instead, he was offered a place at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in its Master of Science degree course in Aeronautics and Astronautics. He entered MIT in June of 1962. It was in Boston that he met Dottie Mead Claiborne, a graduate of Hollins College and the University of North Carolina, who had recently returned from a summer trip to Europe. They became engaged on Christmas Day 1962 and were married by her uncle, Randolph Claiborne, the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta, in the Cathedral of St. Philip on June 1, 1963. They went to Jamaica for their honeymoon but came down with food poisoning. While he was courting Dottie, Duke's grades slipped and he was placed on scholastic probation, but the United States Air Force allowed him to enroll for another term anyway. For his dissertation, Duke teamed up with a classmate, Mike Jones, to perform statistical analysis for the Project Apollo guidance system. As part of this work, they got to meet astronaut Charles Bassett. Their work earned them an A, bringing his average up to the required B, and he was awarded his Master of Science degree in May of 1964. But we did it, and uh, so I got back to MIT, and I was working on the Apollo guidance and navigation system. And uh, I met some of the astronauts, uh, third group, uh, guys like uh, uh, Elliot C. and Charlie Bassett and some of those others. And uh, it turned out uh, 
that uh, they were really gung-ho. And I uh, said, man, how do I get that job? He said, well, you can even go to test pilot school. Although Duke felt his chances of admission were slim, given that he only barely met the minimum qualifications, he still applied for the United States Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School. Fortunately, he was accepted, and his orders came through for him to attend Class 64C, which commenced in August of 1964 at Edwards Air Force Base in California. The commandant at the time was Chuck Yeager, and Duke's 12-member class included Spence Armstrong, Al Worden, Stuart Rusa, and Hank Hartsfield. Peter Hogue topped the class, and Duke tied for second place. After graduating from test pilot school in September 1965, Duke stayed on as an instructor teaching control systems and flying in the F-101 Voodoo, F-104 Starfighter, and T-33 Shooting Star aircraft. While he was stationed at Edwards, his first child, Charles Moss Duke III, was born at the base hospital in March 1965. So I went to test pilot school and uh, worked for Chuck Yeager, who was the... uh, 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 still world-famous uh, test pilot in the United States, probably the premier one that we've ever had, broke the speed of sound, was a great boss, and he encouraged me to have at it uh, once I graduated. Uh, I'm working for him, but he said, if you get a chance, go to the space program. On September 10, 1965, NASA announced that it was recruiting a fifth group of astronauts. Duke spotted a front-page article in the Los Angeles Times and realized that he met all the requirements. He went to see Yeager and the Deputy Commandant, Colonel Robert Buchanan, who informed him that there were two astronaut selections in progress, one for NASA and one for the U.S. Air Force's Manned Orbiting Laboratory Program. Nominations to NASA had to come through Air Force channels, so it got to screen them. Buchanan told Duke that he could apply for both programs, but if he did, the manned orbiting laboratory would take him. Duke applied only to NASA, as did Rusa and Worden. Hartsfield applied for both and was taken by the manned orbiting laboratory program. Duke made the list of 44 finalists selected to undergo medical examinations at Brooks Air Force Base at San Antonio, Texas. He arrived there on January 26, 1966, along with two fellow aviators from Edwards, Joe Engel and Bill Pogue. Psychological tests included the Rorschach test, physical ones including encephalograms, and sessions on treadmills and a human centrifuge. The eye problem that the Naval Academy had reported was never found. The final stage of the selection process was an interview by the seven-member selection panel. This was chaired by Deke Slayton, with the other members being astronauts Alan Shepard, John Young, Michael Collins, and C.C. Williams. NASA test pilot Warren North and spacecraft designer Max Faget. These were conducted over a week at the Rice Hotel in Houston. In April 1966, a phone call from Slayton informed Duke that he had been selected. NASA officially announced the names of the 19 men selected on April 4, 1966. Young named the group the Original 19 in a parody of the original Mercury 7 astronauts. So uh, the next month, in uh, September 65, NASA said, we're looking for more astronauts, please apply. And so I applied and got selected, and we moved to Houston from Edwards Air Force Base in California in June of 66. And I didn't think I'd have much chance to fly because there were 50-something astronauts, and uh, but unfortunately, over a series of 18 to 24 months, we had a horrible record of astronaut deaths. 
We had four guys killed in airplane accidents, three killed in a fire at Kennedy Space Center, one in an automobile accident. John Glenn retired, Scott Carpenter retired, Alan Shepard was grounded, Deke Slayton was grounded, several others were grounded for medical problems. And so we sort of bubbled up into this mix. And sure enough, a lot of us in our group, 19 of us, got to fly to the moon. In 1966, Duke and his family moved to an apartment in League City, Texas. But when Dottie became pregnant again, they bought a vacant lot in El Lago, Texas, next door to astronaut Bill Anders. They met and befriended a young couple, Glenn and Suzanne House, and Glenn was an architect, and he agreed to design them a house for $300. Ground was broken in February 1967, but the house was not completed before a second son, Thomas, was born in May. Astronaut training included four months of studies covering subjects such as astronomy, orbital mechanics, and spacecraft systems. Some 30 hours of briefings were conducted on the Apollo Command and Service Module and 12 on the Apollo Lunar Module. An important feature was training in geology so that astronauts on the moon would know what rocks to look out for. This training in geology included field trips to the Grand Canyon and the Meteor Crater in Arizona, Philmont Scout Ranch in New Mexico, Horse Lava Tube System in Bend, Oregon, the Ash Flow in Marathon Uplift in Texas, and other locations including Alaska and Hawaii. There was also jungle survival training in Panama and desert survival training around Reno, Nevada. Water survival training was conducted at the Naval Station Pensacola using the Dilbert Dunker. And uh, most people think astronaut is pretty glamorous, you know, and, uh, you know, you wave to the crowd and you launch to fame and fortune. Well, uh, nobody sees the 500 hours in a spacesuit or the 2,000 hours in a simulator, all the geology training and all of that stuff that we had to do. It was a hard job, but a very rewarding, rewarding job. And so, uh, but it took a big toll uh, on us and our families because, Back then, the training was all in Florida, but the families lived in Houston. Uh, so you can imagine uh, five days a week, you're, you're out for two years, you're gone. Once their initial training was complete, Duke and Rusa were assigned to oversee the development of the Saturn V launch vehicle as part of the booster branch of the astronaut office, headed by Frank Borman and C.C. Williams. Charlie was part of the mission control team at Kennedy Space Center that monitored the launch of Gemini 11 on September 12, 1966 and Gemini 12 on November 11, 1966. His personal responsibility was the Titan II booster. He frequently traveled to Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama to confer with its director, Vernon Brown. NASA provided a T-38 Talon aircraft for astronauts' use, and like most astronauts, Duke flew it at every opportunity. Eventually, the Group 5 astronauts were divided into Command and Service Module and Lunar Module Specialist. Slayton asked each of them which specialty they preferred, but made the final decision himself. Once again, Duke received his choice and became a Lunar Module Specialist. Charlie oversaw the development of the Lunar Module Propulsion Systems. A major concern was the Ascent Propulsion System, which was a critical component of the mission that had to work for the astronauts to survive. Testing at the White Sands Missile Range in 1966 indicated combustion instability. George Lowe, the Apollo spacecraft program manager, convened a committee to review the situation, and Duke became the astronaut representative on it. Although Bell was confident that it could resolve the problems, NASA hired Rocketdyne to develop an alternative engine just in case. The committee ultimately decided to use Rocketdyne's injector system with Bell's engine. 
1969, Duke became a member of the support crew for Apollo 10, along with Joe Engel and Jim Irwin. During projects Mercury and Gemini, each mission had a prime and backup crew. For Apollo, a third crew of astronauts was added, known as the support crew. The support crew maintained the flight plan, checklist, and mission ground rules, and ensured the prime crew and backup crews were apprised of changes. They developed procedures, especially those for emergency situations, so these were ready for when the prime and backup crews came to train in the simulators, allowing them to concentrate on practicing and mastering them. Because of Duke's familiarity with the lunar module, the Apollo 10 mission commander, Tom Stafford, selected him to serve as Capcom for the lunar module orbit, activation, checkout, and rendezvous for the mission. It was unusual for someone to serve as Capcom on back-to-back missions, but for the same reason, familiarity with the lunar module, Neil Armstrong, the commander of Apollo 11, asked Duke to reprise his role on that mission, which included the first crewed landing on the moon. Duke told Armstrong that he would be honored to do so. Charlie Duke's distinctive southern drawl became familiar to audiences around the world as the voice of mission control made nervous by a long landing that almost expended all of the lunar module's fuel. Here's how Charlie remembers it. Yeah, well, first off, we were 17 seconds away from aborting that mission, the landing. And so you can imagine the uh, tension control, uh, the tension in mission control. We were all holding our breath. So uh, we, I'd call 30 seconds, and I counted my watch down to 13 more seconds, and then I heard Buzz Aldrin say, contact, engine stop. And I knew they were on the ground. And uh, it, it, the tension began to subside, and uh, I uh, uh, waited and waited a few seconds. It seemed like eternity, but finally Neil Armstrong came very coldly, calmly. Houston, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. And I was so excited, it came out, Roger Twang. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, it, uh, I said, uh, yeah. Roger Twang, no, uh, Tranquility, we cop you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. So uh, we were. We started breathing. We've been holding our breath. The next advancement after serving on a support crew was to serve on a backup crew. Deke Slayton developed a rotation plan whereby the backup crew for one mission would become the prime crew for a flight three missions later, and then the backup for the flight three missions after that. Now, if the commander declined the offer of another mission, the command module pilot, as the next most senior astronaut, would become the commander. Thus, the Apollo 10 crew became the backup crew for Apollo 13. Tom Stafford accepted the position of acting chief of the astronaut office, so the command module pilot, John Young, stepped up to replace him as the commander. Gene Cernan remained lunar module pilot, and Jack Swigert, a command module specialist from the original 19, was designated the command module pilot. The intention was that this crew would eventually become the prime crew for Apollo 16. But Cernan did not agree to this. He wanted to command his own mission. Slayton therefore assigned Duke, who was well known to Young from Apollo 10, in Cernan's place. The prime crew for Apollo 13 consisted of Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Ken Mattingly. Two or three weeks before the launch date, Duke contracted rubella, German measles, from Paul House, the son of his architect, Glenn House. It was found that Lovell and Hayes were immune to the disease, but Mattingly was not. The decision was taken to remove Mattingly and replace him with Swigert. The subsequent explosion on Apollo 13 greatly affected the backup crew. 
especially Mattingly, who felt that he should have been on board. Young, Mattingly, and Duke worked in the simulators to develop emergency procedures for the crew, who were ultimately returned safely to Earth. Nevertheless, Hayes and Swigert constantly teased Duke, calling him Typhoid Mary. And so, uh, 1972, after working on Apollo 10, Apollo 11, and back up on Apollo 13, I got my chance to go on Apollo uh, 16. Young, Mattingly, and Duke were officially named as the crew of Apollo 16, the fifth lunar landing mission on March 3, 1971. The Descartes Highland was chosen as the landing site on June 3, 1971. This was the highest region on the near side of the moon. Training was conducted in the lunar module simulator, which used a television camera and a scale model of the landing area. Other activities included driving a training version of the lunar rover and collecting geological samples. A final geological field trip was made to the Big Island of Hawaii in December of 71. On the second day of the trip, Duke caught the flu. By New Year's Day, he was so ill that he was unable to get out of bed and asked the astronaut office to send someone to take him to the doctor at the Kennedy Space Center. The doctor took an x-ray that revealed pneumonia in both lungs and called an ambulance to take Duke to Patrick Air Force Base Hospital. At this point, Duke feared that he might not recover in time for the launch, which was scheduled for March 17, 1972. The spacecraft and Saturn V launch vehicle had already been rolled out to the launch pad on December 13, but luck was with Duke. Grumman engineers wanted more time to test the increased capacity of the lunar module batteries. A fault was found with the explosive cords that separate the lunar module from the command and service module that warranted their replacement and a failure of a clamp in Duke's spacesuit during training required the modification of all three astronaut suits. This caused the launch date to be postponed to the next launch window on April 16th. This proved fortunate when an error by launch pad technicians caused one of the command module's Teflon fuel tank bladders to rupture and the entire space vehicle had to be returned to the vehicle assembly building. Even with Charlie's fear of replacement, Deke Slayton said that there was never any discussion of replacing him. That was one of the lessons they had learned on Apollo 13. The astronauts went into quarantine and were allowed out only to fly T-38s for an hour a day. The day before liftoff, the Apollo program director, Rocco Patrone, saw someone he thought was Duke around the pool at the Holiday Inn. A furious Patrone called the crew quarters demanding to know why Duke had broken quarantine. The staff protestations that Duke was still there and had not left, did not placate Patron, and they had to track down Duke in training, who suggested that Patron might have seen his brother, Bill. When Apollo 16 was launched at 12.54 Eastern Time on April 16, 1972, Duke became the first twin to fly in space. The launch was normal. The crew experienced vibration similar to that of previous crews, the first and second stages of the Saturn V performed flawlessly and the spacecraft entered low Earth orbit just under 12 minutes after liftoff. Here's how Charlie remembered the launch. The fuel's very cold, so is the vehicle shaking like crazy from side to side uh, it, as it starts to move. We're sitting up at the very top and it's a big aluminum structure and so it, it moves very slowly at first uh, and, uh, but then as you burn out your fuel, of course, you accelerate. And uh, the windows are covered over at this point, so you're shaking. All, all I remember is the vibration from side to side. And I was there's something wrong with this thing, I'm thinking to myself. <laughs> but, but John was saying, you go, and uh, he was the commander in Mission Control, you go. And so I just trusted him, and uh, we went. And uh, so I... And, uh, 
And my heart was really pounding. And I found out later my heartbeat was 144 per minute at this point. And, uh, and, I, and so I asked the flight surgeon, I said, well, what was John Young's at that point? He said, oh, his was 70. So, <laughs> so but it was his first, second ride on the Saturn. After the launch, the mission experienced multiple technical problems, but none were unsurmountable. Duke became the 10th person to walk on the surface of the moon, following Young, who became the ninth. In a stay of 71 hours and 14 minutes, Duke and Young conducted three excursions onto the lunar surface, during which Duke logged 20 hours and 15 minutes in EVAs. These included the emplacement and activation of scientific equipment and experiments like the ALSEP package. This is my most embarrassing moment. That's me going out to the right. Uh, and uh, in my arms is a barbell deal. And on the right side that you'll see here is $10 million worth of moon experiments called the ALSEP. And as I bounce out across there, they fall off. <laughs> Oh, I, I, took, I took a quick look at the, to, make, to see if they saw it on TV, and uh, and because I, I wasn't going to fess up, but uh, fortunately they weren't hurt, 1-6 gravity. Duke helped collect nearly 97 kilograms or 213 pounds of rock and soil samples and helped with the evaluation and use of the lunar roving vehicle over the roughest surface yet encountered on the moon. During their final few minutes on the surface, Duke attempted to set a lunar high jump record. He jumped about 2 feet 8 inches, but overbalanced and fell over backwards on his primary life support system. It could have been a fatal accident had his suit ruptured or broken. He might have died. His commander, John Young, noted, quote, that ain't very smart, end quote. Uh, now, this is my uh, big fear moment. Uh, I'm the guy on the left, and we're doing the Moon Olympics, and I was going to set the high jump record. So there I go, over backwards. <laughs> and I'm in trouble. If that suit breaks, I'm dead. And uh, the backpack was very fragile, uh, and so I fortunately didn't panic, rolled right, broke my fall, and I was on, flat on my back, and my heart's pounding. John comes over and helps me up, and uh, as you see, here I get up. And uh, then I look up, and the TV camera's pointed right at me again, and Mission Control's very, very upset, and that ended the Moon Olympics, by the way. Duke left two items on the moon, both of which he photographed. The most famous was a plastic-encased photo portrait of his family taken by NASA photographer Ludy Benjamin. The reverse of the photo was signed and thumbprinted by Duke's family and bore this message, quote, This is the family of astronaut Duke from planet Earth who landed on the moon on the 20th of April, 1972, end quote. The other item was a commemorative medal issued by the Air Force which was celebrating its 25th anniversary in 1972. Duke was the only Air Force officer to visit the moon that year. With the approval of the Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, General John D. Ryan, and the Secretary of the Air Force, Robert Siemens, Duke took two silver medallions commemorating the anniversary. He left one on the moon and donated the other to the Air Force. Today, it is on display at the National Museum of the United States Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, along with a moon rock from the Apollo 16 mission. On the way back to Earth, Duke assisted in a deep space EVA that lasted 1 hour and 23 minutes when Mattingly climbed out of the Casper spacecraft and retrieved film cassettes from the service module. The Apollo 16 mission concluded with a splashdown in the Pacific Ocean on April 27th and recovery by the aircraft carrier USS Ticonderoga. After the mission was over, Duke became the backup lunar module pilot for Apollo 17 and went into training again in June 1972, 
just two months after returning from the moon. Of course, his services were not required, and Duke never flew in space again. He retired from NASA on January 1, 1976, having spent 265 hours and 51 minutes in space. Following his retirement from NASA, Duke left active duty in the United States Air Force as a colonel and entered the Air Force Reserve. He served as mobilization augment to the Commander Air Force Basic Military Training Center and to the Commander U.S. Air Force Recruiting Service. He graduated from the Industrial College of the Armed Forces in 1978 and was promoted to Brigadier General the following year. He retired from the Air Force in June of 1986, and he has over 4,147 hours of flying time, of which 3,632 hours was in a jet aircraft. Duke has always been fond of Coors Beer, which was only available in Texas around Dallas and El Paso at the time. In 1975, he heard that the company was thinking of expanding into the rest of Texas, so, he formed a partnership with former Olympic basketball player Dick Buska, and they drew up a business plan and put in a bid for the new Coors Distribution Center in Austin. Coors declined their bid, but offered the distributorship in San Antonio instead, which they accepted. The house in El Lago was sold, and Duke and his family moved to New Braunfels a community not far from San Antonio, where, as of December 2019, he and his wife Dottie remain. His brother Bill died in 2011. The Coors distributorship was very successful, but Duke became bored and frustrated with it and decided to sell it in February of 78. He and Bushka realized a handsome profit from what had become a thriving business, he joined a friend, Ken Campbell, in real estate ventures. His subsequent business ventures included being president of the Orbit Corporation from 76 to 78, director of the Robbins Company from 86 to 89, and Amherst Fiber Optics in 2000, chairman of Duke Resources from 1988 to 93, and Texcor from 89 to 94, and of the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation from 2011 to 2012. He was also a consultant for Lockheed Martin. Since 1978, Duke has been a committed born-again Christian. He wrote in his book that his temper, ego, single-minded devotion to work, and greed had ruined his relationship with his wife and children, and his marriage teetered on the verge of divorce in the late 1960s and early 70s. Dottie suffered from depression and considered suicide. Duke and Dottie, who became a Christian before him, credit religion with making their lives much happier. Duke stated that his marriage and his relationship with his children improved considerably after he found religion. He is active now in prison ministry. Duke earned numerous awards and honors. I will list just a few an honorary doctorate of philosophy from the University of South Carolina, an honorary doctorate of humanities from the Francis Marion University, an honorary doctorate in philosophy from Clemson University, NASA Distinguished Service Medal, the Manned Spacecraft Center Certificate of Commendation in 1970, the Air Force Distinguished Service Medal with Oak Leaf Cluster, the Legion of Merit, the American Astronautical Society Flight Achievement Award, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics Haley Astronautics Award, and he was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983, and he was also inducted with 24 other Apollo astronauts into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. Duke has also been a cultural influence. He was the subject of the documentary Lunar Tribute, which premiered at the American Museum of National History Hayden Planetarium in October of 2017. He was featured prominently in the BBC World Service podcast called 13 Minutes to the Moon. It was released in 2019 to mark 50 years since the Apollo 11 mission. 
In 2018, country music duo The Stryker Brothers released the song Charlie Duke Took Country Music to the Moon, which I played an excerpt from at the beginning of this episode. The song tells the true story of how Duke brought two audio cassette tapes of country music to play during the Apollo 16 mission. Duke's friend Bill Bailey, a disc jockey at Houston area country music radio station KIKK, had enlisted several country stars of the time to provide personalized recordings for the astronauts. The tapes were introduced by Merrill Haggard and other artists, including Porter Wagner, Dolly Parton, Buck Owens, Jerry Reed, Chet Atkins, and Floyd Kramer. Charlie Duke took country music to the moon. He blasted off and busted out those songs by Buck and Merle. Porter, Jerry, Chet, and Dolly rode that rocket ship with Charlie. Folks from Bakersfield to Raleigh sang with every tune. When Charlie Duke took Country music to the moon. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 353 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 16, Lunar Module Pilot Charlie Duke. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on December 17th. Sorry I ran so long again. I'll try to move things along now. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 179 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Hey, did you know it's listener rewards season? Just like last year, if you donated $100 or more during 2020 and have not received a magnet, Send me an email and I will send you one. And if you have donated $50 to $99 this year, send me an email and we will send you out a sticker. This offer is good until December 31st. My email address is mike at spacerockethistory.com. As promised, I added a little funding reminder at the beginning of the episode. It is there. So the 60% of listeners that don't listen to the afterthoughts will know how to support the podcast if they so choose. I'm still looking for long news audio or video clips for Apollo 16 and R17. Uh, When I say that, I'm talking about something from CBS, NBC, or ABC. So if you have something, don't be shy. Send it in. Contact me at mike at spacerockethistory.com. I was planning on starting Young's biography this episode, but there was so much interesting information about Charlie Duke that it took the whole episode. In Charlie's book, Moonwalker, he gives a very detailed summary of his life, and Wikipedia summarized his book really well, so that's where the information comes from. I highly recommend Charlie's book. I have a hard copy that he autographed for me, when I met him a few years ago. It was at a prayer breakfast in Oklahoma City. He was there to speak about his Christian experience, and he was a very good speaker. After it was over, Mrs. SRH and I got to talk to him very briefly, and I shook his hand. That was my first real moonwalker handshake, and that was exciting, let me tell you. I told him about the podcast and gave him a magnet and some stickers. <laughs> I'm sure he was delighted about that. <laughs> but it, it was wonderful, but it was brief. He seemed like a, a super nice guy. You know, he was even taller than I expected, though. Anyway, I played an excerpt of a song by the Stryker Brothers. A kind listener, PJ, tweeted me, the YouTube URL for this song. And if you want to hear it in its entirety, just do a YouTube search for Charlie Duke Took Country Music to the Moon, and uh, you'll find it there. I hope I don't get a takedown notice for playing that excerpt. And finally, it's the time of year for what I like to call the Emoji Maneuver. 
If you have looked at the donors page, most people have a little emoji next to their name indicating the number of years they have supported the podcast. For two years support, you get a rocket, three years a moon, four years a satellite, five years a shooting star, six years a galaxy, and seven years an alien emoji. Well, December is a very good time to advance your emoji quickly. For example, if you have never donated, in December you could get your name on the donors list for 2020 by making a donation and then donate in January and get your name on the 2021 donors list with a rocket emoji next to your name as though you have donated two years in a row. Now that example works for whatever level your emoji that you have right now. So now is the time for the Emoji Maneuver. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions and increases. I would like to thank Eric P. from Indiana, who sent in another donation and moved to the Starship level. Pete P. from Georgia sent in another donation and moved to the Shuttle level. Peter C. from the U.K. donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Dwayne H. from Wisconsin donated at the Apollo level. Frank S. donated at the Vostok level. Matthew G. donated at the Vostok level. Andy S. from the Czech Republic sent in another donation and moved to the Salute Skylab level. Benjamin R. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. Christoph C. from Germany pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Thorsten M. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreon donors are at 249. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. We might can still make it if we hurry. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 418 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Are you ready for the drawing for this episode? Remember, the winner will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet or two coasters or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or the new SRH archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Kirk Briggs. Kirk Briggs, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 418 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were NASA, the Apollo 16 press kit, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, Apollo 16 Mission Report, The Internet Archive, The Stryker Brothers, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 354 posted by Thursday, December 17th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.